So last week, uh, we talked about, who do we talk about? Samuel and Saul. And today we're going to talk about, talk about King David. And I will tell you that it's going to take two weeks uh, to go through his story. Uh, because if you look throughout the, the Bible, you will see that Abraham, you know, has like six chapters. But King David has 68 chapters that are written specifically in the Bible about King David. So in other words, he carries a lot of information uh, from, uh, for, um, from the Bible. Um, in, in other words, his role in the process of this Bible. So if you look at King David, we just have to start the verse that he's looking for a king, Samuel's looking for a king, and this is what he's looking for when he comes to the king, First Samuel 16, 7. This is going to drive David's life because he's called a man after his own heart. This is what a man after God's own heart looks like. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord does what? He looks at the heart. Now, when you start talking about the word heart, what is the, what is the word heart? A lot of people say it's, it's the emotions, but it's even beyond the emotions. The heart is the whole of the person. If the heart is alive, the actions are alive. If the heart is alive, and the, the excitement is alive. The emotions are alive. Everything about the heart, whatever comes into the heart, comes in the entire perspective. And God's not looking at the behavior. He's looking specifically at the core of the individual. And one thing about God is what he is looking for is he's looking for an ordinary person more than an extraordinary person. Because an extraordinary person is often somebody with a lot of talent, somebody with a lot of gifts, someone with a lot of capabilities. But God is not looking at that person. He's looking at what? Specifically the heart, what is on the inside. And what does he want on the inside? One who is dependent. Not independent, but one who is dependent. Why would God look for somebody who is dependent? Remember who fights all the battles? God fights all the battles. Who fights all your battles? God should be fighting all your battles. But when we have an independent heart, guess what we're doing? We're taking the power, we're taking the strength, and we're taking the glory out of God's hands, putting it in our own, and driving forward for the purpose of what? What's going to take place is the glorification of our own name. The problem is, is that my name does, is not worth a hill of beans. God's name is what saves, so my life should say, God, I am dependent. So when somebody looks at me, they should say, well, this guy is doing something, but what is he doing? He's not doing something on his own strength. He's doing something on God's strength. And when I see this person, he should be broken. He should be humble all the way through Scripture because there's a dependency on God. See, God is not looking for the extraordinary person. He's looking for the ordinary person that is literally, completely, and entirely in love with him. Talent and um, ability are not prerequisites of being used by God, but a heart that is connected to God's heart is a prerequisite of being used by God. So there's two different things that you can take the ordinary and make it extraordinary. It takes a God with all the power and then a heart that is specifically submissive, a heart that is completely humble. God doesn't bless programs. What does he do? He blesses people. And when people get blessed, what happens? The world around them changes. So we can ask the question, I'm an ordinary person, but am I a dependent person? 
Is that, what, is that what I am? So look at Psalms 139. Search me, O God. This is a psalm from David. And know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me to the way of everlasting. This is why David's being called a man after God's own heart. He's saying, God, I want you to come in. I want you to search. I want you to test. I want you to get rid of anything you want to get rid of. And I want you to put in there anything that you want to put in there. Because I'm not, I don't want to exist on my own. I want you to exist through me. Therefore, when God says, I want to exist through you, I will tell you that uh, you will do things that are beyond what you think is, is good. I mean, just in a sense that God wants to, we can't reduce God into what we can do and accomplish. We have to go to God and say, God, I want you to work in me for the purpose of doing what you want through the glory of your name. And that's exactly who David, who David was. Alan Redpath said these words, if you begin with God, your enemies grow small. If you begin with your enemy, you may never reach God. I just want to read that again. If you begin with God, your enemies grow small. If you begin with your enemy, you may never reach God. What it's saying is completely anchor into me and all your enemies will be completely taken care of. But if you're consumed with your enemies, then you will never even really get to see the hand of God. And we want to watch this and look at this in David's life. So we're going to talk about a battle. The best battle, the most amazing battle, the most popular battle that's ever been fought in this world was not between two armies. They were between what? Between two men. Two men. I want you to look at David's heart in this process of going through this battle. And I just want to show you a map, show you a couple maps of what we're what we're looking at here. This is um, the store, or this is Israel right here. And I try to get, you know, to the, um, the valleys and the mountains. I'm trying to get, you know, where you can be able to see the areas. This is the Philistine land that was taking place right here. Remember when Joshua conquered, when he conquered, he conquered all these areas here, but the Philistines still had strongholds that were taking place, that were taking place here. So let's look at 1 Samuel 17, 4. It says, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, and Gath is... Oh, I'm sorry. I'll go back to, go back to that one. Oh, that one's not it. Oh, now I got lost. I'm just going to read the passage. I'll let you guys take over, and we'll read the passage. There we go. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to read the passage, and then we'll go back over it. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out to the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he wore a coat of scale armor and bronze weight 5,000 shekels, which is about 175 to 200 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was, a slung, uh, was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a, wave, a weaver's rod, and the iron point weighed 600 shekels. It would be about 20, that would be just the, the weight. 20 pounds to 25 pounds would just be the, the tip, of the, um, the, tip of, the, um, of the iron rod. And his shield bearer went, um, went ahead of him. So if you look at this person, this person is nine feet tall. This person is absolutely huge. And as he's standing, he has a Philistine army behind him. And he is challenging people to a battle. Now, why did the Bible describe all his clothing? Why would the Bible give him all the, the clothing? that? It, why, why do we get this sort of explanation? I just want to look at one picture when it talks about his, army, or his armor was the scales. Uh, if you take a sword, this is what the armor looked like. If you take a sword, you cannot penetrate um, this armor. 
So this was the base of his armor. People were not challenging him, and the reason why people were not challenging Goliath is because you couldn't stick a sword into Goliath. Why? Because he had all the armor on. But this was just a specific base. Yes, he was nine feet tall, but then he had a helmet on as well. And so on the helmet, you can't hit him in the head, and you cannot hit him in the base. And then it also talked about his shield. Now, a shield back then was not just a circle shield that just takes the core of the person. It was a body shield. So you have the whole body shield that goes over the body for the second protection of this man. So if you looked at Goliath from an enemy perspective, he's sitting there mocking God. He's sitting there telling people what for. He's sitting there saying, come kill me. Come work me over. I dare you, knowing that if he kills you, you're going to win the war. You're not going to win the war. And what do you have there? You have probably just a little tiny piece of forehead. That's all you got. <laughs> That's all you got. This guy's impossible literally to kill, and that's why he's given descriptions of the army. But did you know that when David, who was a a young man, he didn't um, kill one Goliath? Did you know he fought three Goliaths? I don't know if you ever read the Bible. One Goliath is not, he fought three Goliaths. So here comes a young man out of the, out of the, um, out of, to feed his brothers. And as he comes to feed his brothers, let's look at each of the Goliaths that he fights. 1 Samuel 17, 28 says, when Elab, David's oldest brother heard him speaking with men. He burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? This is him talking to David. This is his older brother. Why have you come down here? And with whom do you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You see an older brother and you see a younger brother? Ah, It's kind of getting hit hard. Now, what have I done? said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the man answered him as before. When David said, was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. So here he is having a conversation with his brother. What's the first battle that David fought? What was the first Goliath that David fought? It was the closest people to him. What were the closest people to him? It was his brothers. And what did they do? They started smashing him and saying, who are you? Started yelling at him. Where is your arrogance? What is taking place? And David was just saying, this guy is mocking the living God, and you're standing here taking it? Why would you take it? Let's charge into battle, and the brothers then fight David. The first battle, the first Goliath that David killed was his closest family members, his closest friends. Why? Because they're taking his heart, and they're literally crushing his heart. Did you know the first battle we often kill when, when God says, hey, I want you to go a direction? It's the ones that are closest to us. The ones that say, oh, hold on a second. I don't know if you're capable of that. I don't know if you're gifted to that. I don't know if you can even do that. We look at our mind, but God's looking at the heart. What is your motive? What is your drive? And you got to go through the battles. So look at David. Yes, he's being called somebody who's weak. He's being called somebody who's selfish. He's being somebody who called somebody that sits back and just watches the war take place. And what happens? What David said was overheard, and then somebody reported it to Saul. David should not be fighting this army. (laughs) The reason why David should not be fighting the army is because he just said some things, and he was suffocated and smothered by his brothers when he said those things. But somebody overheard him speak, and then for what? It got word to Saul. So he had to fight others before he could even fight the Goliath or fight the giant. The other thing he fought is he fought himself. First Samuel seventeen forty one. Meanwhile, 
the Philistines with the shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and despised him. He said to David, I, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by the gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the fields. What's he doing? Goliath is not attacking his body. He's not attacking his life. He's attacking his, his, his heart. He's saying, you're an absolutely nobody. And then in David's mind, you think about it. My brother says I'm a nobody. My opponent says I am a nobody. And I'm still needing to press forward. Why? Because God says I am a somebody if I do what? Depend specifically on him. And then the last one he fights is he fights his opponent. First Samuel 17, David said to the Philistines, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord. Remember who fights the battles? <laughs> David knows who fights the battles. It's not me who fights the battles. I come in the name of the Lord, Almighty, the God of the army of Israel. When you have def- the one you have defied, this day the Lord will hand you over to me and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give you the carcass to the Philistine army, to the birds of the air, and to the beasts of the earth, and the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel. You see how David's fighting? You see what a man looks like after God's own heart? This battle is not mine. The glory is not mine. The mission is not mine. Everything I'm doing is, is not mine. All those gathered here will know that it is not the sword or the spear that the Lord saves. The battle belongs to what? The Lord. And he will give all of you into my hands. Think about that. God wants to take every person beyond what they can do. Every person beyond what they can do and place them into situations beyond only what God can do. You know, when it comes to evangelism, you know, it's sometimes like, well, I can't evangelize the people. And the reason why I can't evangelize the people is I might not have the right answers. I might not have the right words. Well, God knows that that person really needs the right um, emotions that needs to take place. We just have to step forward and let God do the work. But so much of us is, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And the entire Old Testament, as you see, and the entire New Testament, it's like, why would we ever say that? Because you're not supposed to do what you can do. You're supposed to only do what God can do. Therefore, just be faithful and step out and do it. And this is what the story is about. A man that you cannot kill, which is Goliath. But a little boy that said, I will kill, but I will not do it on my own strength. I will do it on the strength of God. And who's going to get the glory? God's going to get the glory. So what did he do? He found five stones. As he found five stones, he sunk into the head of Goliath, the only little thing that was there. I mean, this is the only little piece that, was, that, that you can find. So I don't think he thought about it before he went. He says, God, I'll take a step, I'll take a step, I'll take a step, I'll take a step. I've got stones, I don't know where to place them. And then all of a sudden he looks up and says, ah, there's exactly where I should place them. And God gave him that. And I'll tell you, with a slingshot, you can, you can hit a barn with a slingshot. Anybody can. But it takes a god that would take a stone and sink it into the, the head of a monster. You see the, how God does his work, and as soon as God does his work, the giant falls down, and as the giant falls down, David comes with a sword, and David takes his head off. 
And then as soon as he takes his head off with Goliath's sword, what takes place? The armies charge. The battle is won. And the Philistines lost. But who fought the battle? It was not, and this is going to go through all David's life, it was not David who fought the battle. It was God's battle, and this is what the story is telling. So, sure enough, Goliath goes down. Saul starts asking these questions. Who is this guy? Now, it's interesting when Saul starts asking the questions on who is this guy, because what does he ask? 1 Samuel 17. And Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistines, and he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, who is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. Now we're not looking at, what are we looking at here? Give me the guy's father. Give me the guy's genealogy. Give me the guy, where is he at? I mean, does he, and do you know what he's going to look for? He's going to look for, is he um, a son to a priest? Remember the Levites were the priests. Is he a son of, of God? Where's this connection with God? He's looking for it. Who is that um, son's father? As David has returned to killing, oh, I'm sorry, killing the Philistines. Whose son is the young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, from Bethlehem. And remember the history and remember the lineage that comes from the son of Jesse to David. And then we get the son of Jesus is David. So I think Saul's mind is going, oh, this is really, really interesting. But what happens is that Saul's going to take advantage of it. But as somebody else is observing it, which is Saul's son, Jonathan, as he's observing it, he's seeing a young man that went forward without his strength and with God's strength. And I will tell you that Jonathan looked at it and said, oh my goodness, this guy's got something going for him. And right then, Jonathan said, let me introduce myself to him. Look at 1 Samuel 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. So Saul took David and said, you know, something's going on with this guy. He carried a lot of strength. He fought a huge battle. The battle might belong to the Lord. Because remember, Saul remembered the first days of his fighting, and he also remembered the days of his rejection. But he kept, what, David at distance. Jonathan says, this is God's man. He's doing something that is beyond his strength. I wonder if God is working work with him. But Saul wanted to take advantage of him, so what did Saul do? Saul took David and he used him. First Samuel 18, 5 says, when, uh, whatever, sent, whatever Saul sent David to do, David did it so successfully that God continued to give him high ranking in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. His army is now flourishing, but it's no longer flourishing through what? Saul, it's starting to flourish through David. And what is Saul thinking? You've got to remember the stories that took place last week, you know, in a sense of what Saul is thinking. I was rejected by God. Samuel said that somebody else is going to get it. Is this David getting it? Is he the one that's taking care of it? Well, the people believed it. First Samuel 18, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So now they're starting to give, what, David all the credit, and it's been pulled away from Saul. So you can see who fights the battles. Ah, God's fighting the battles. Is he with Saul, or he specifically with David? And I tell you that that tormented Saul to the nth degree. Saul tried to kill David with a spear. 
Saul says, I've got to fix this situation. I'll give David a wife, Michael. That's his daughter. I'll give her a, a wife. So hopefully we can be able to keep this relationship going because he has God I don't have, and God fights the battles I don't. And then Saul says, well, you know what? I can't kill him with a spear. I can't get the harmony between giving him a wife. Um, so I'll just send him on a mission for the purpose of killing him. And so Saul sent David on an impossible task and said, I want you to go after a hundred Philistines. I want you to kill them, and I want you to bring the foreskins to me. And this was done for the purpose of, of David dying in the process. But David says, well, I don't fight my battles. I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to do what Saul's telling me to do. He goes, and he brings back 300 foreskins that are there and says everything that he did was completely what? Was completely blessed by God. Again, Saul again tries to kill David by spearing him to the wall. Saul cannot get rid of this guy who is anointed by God. He can't get soldiers to kill him. He can't kill him with a spear. He is completely tormented because David has God on his side, driving his battles and driving his war. And Saul is sitting there, I don't, I don't, I don't have it. And then there's a new moon festival. What are we going to do here? 1 Samuel 20 talks about this time of, of transition where you're going to see David go a direction. And I want you to look at this time of transition. First Samuel 20. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon festival. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, towards evening, go to the place where you're to head when the trouble begins and wait there to the stone of Ezel. I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a little boy, go, find the arrows. If I say to him, look, the arrows are on the side of you, bring them to me, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you are safe. There is no longer danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows go beyond, then you must go, because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you have discussed, remember, the Lord is your witness between you and me forever. See what's taking place is, Jonathan knows that Saul will not, or that David will not be able to survive next to Saul. And so as he knows he's not going to be able to survive next to Saul, he says, I've got to see what is going on in Saul's heart. And therefore, I will talk to my father at the New Moon Festival. And when I talk to my father, I will see that if he is still wanting to kill you, or if he's not wanting to kill you, or if, they can, if you guys can survive together, if you guys can work together. So at the New Moon Festival, there was a seat that was empty, and Jonathan started to talk to King Saul. As he's talking to King Saul, he brings up the topic of David. And when he brings up the topic of David, what, is, what does Saul do? Just furious with anger. So furious with anger that he even tries to kill Jonathan at the New Moon Festival. There's just an anger that pours out. And so David is waiting for this conversation to see if I should come back to Saul or if I should not come back to Saul. But what they're going to do is they're going to do it in hiding. So they're going to go to the, the Valley of Ezel. And on Ezel, because, you know, David's in hiding. As he's in hiding, um, um, Jonathan's going to shoot some arrows. And he's got these young persons going after the arrows. And they already have this written in the code because David just can't come out in the open because of what Saul's doing. And he's got it written in code that if I shoot an arrow that is close and the boy goes get it, then you are free to come out from hiding. You can come and we will embrace Saul and we'll move together. But if I shoot it way beyond what's going to take place, you need to run because Saul is still going after your life. He still wants to kill you. So here's David. Think about him sitting in the brush. He is waiting for his call. Am I going to be able to embrace the kingdom that God 
has anointed me to rule? Or am I going to have to run from the kingdom that God has anointed me to rule? And wherever the arrow goes will tell David whether he's going to go to God's kingdom or if he's not going to go to God's kingdom. And then what took place? The arrow shot far into the air, and the far into the air is David going, I need to separate from the kingdom that God anointed me for, and I need to go this direction rather than go and embrace Saul and continue to work with Saul. So this is a a huge piece in David's life because he was working with the army and the people that God has given him. And sure enough, he now has what? Absolutely nothing. I had something with an anointing. God is my witness that I've been anointed to rule these people. But now, God, you tell me I have absolutely nothing. But remember what God was looking for? He was looking after his own heart. He had nothing but who? But God. So what did he do? He went to Nob. And when he went to Nob, this is where the priests, the Levites, were at. It's on the Mount of Olives. And when he went there, he, he got Goliath's sword, is one thing that he, he did. And uh, then he went, continue on his journey. And he went on his journey to Gath. And remember who was from Gath? Goliath was from Gath. So he even went to the Philistine lands. If you think about David and his little, his, his little journey here, is that David left his people, but as he left his people, why did he leave his people? Because all those people wanted to kill him. So he goes to Gath, the enemy lands, and what do they want to do? They all want to kill him, and he's just one single individual with absolutely nothing but God as he's traveling around. And guess who is following him? Saul. Saul says, this guy is going to die. So here he is right in the middle of his enemies and right in the middle of his other enemies on both sides, and it's just one man. Saul, sure enough, shows up at Nob, and how aggressive is Saul. Well, he goes to the priest, and as he goes to the priest, he starts to ask the priest questions. Remember who the priests were? The priests are David's people. David is anointed by God. Those are his people. If he's going to be able to get the nation, those people are going to get him there. So the priests are the ones that are going to be saying, we are my witnesses that David should be the king. So Saul walks up, and they start asking those guys questions and say, you know, are you guys supporting David? In fact, I, don't know, I see that you're supporting David, and I, it's wicked that you support David. And I want you to know that anybody who supports David is going to do what? They're going to die. So what does Saul do? He kills all the priests. <laughs> he takes them all. The people that are supposed to give David the nation, the king, are all of a sudden what? Are, are, are dead. The only ones that he's hanging on to are all of a sudden dead. Absolutely nothing. Enemies on one side, enemies on the other side. And where did he go? He went to the caves of Adalom. First Samuel 22, David then left Gath, and he escaped to the caves of Adalom. When the brothers of his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who, live, who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So David went down to the caves, and what happened? All of those who were in distress, all those who were in debt, and all those who were discontented, let's just summarize that, all the losers showed up. <laughs> he went to the cave in hiding as all armies are on his side, and all the losers, what, show up, 
and there's 400 losers in the country with who? With David, who have absolutely nothing but who? But God. And to give you the whole story, as all those losers are with David, God is now going to train them to be admirals, going to train them to be warriors, is going to train them to be the highest, strongest officials that the army, that an army has ever seen into this world. Those are the people that God's going to use. Do we see a parallel in this story at all? You see a parallel when Jesus walked, came to earth, and he prays? If you're going to pray, what are you going to do? You're going to get the best qualified people in the world? Is that correct? Jesus is going to pray all the way through the night, and then tomorrow he's going to select his people, 12 disciples. Prays all night, going to get his 12 disciples, and look who he picks. (laughs) How many people are like, Jesus, you're going the wrong direction. You don't get the dirty old fisherman. You, you, go to the, you go to the temple. You go get the priest. You go get the strength. You go get the, the educated. You don't get, you don't get the losers. But do you see a parallel that's taking place? Who fights the battles? Does the educated, does the rich, does the strong, does the one that drives forward with amazing leadership fight the battles? No, it's not. The ones that are dependent. And sure enough, he picks the unremarkable people to run his country. First Samuel 22 says, for there David went to Mezpah. Oh, I just want to give you, give you some slides of, of where he's going, of just kind of where he's running to. I'll just give you a first Samuel 22. From there David went to Mezpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, would you let my father and mother come to stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So I just want to show you some slides, just give you kind of a little bit around where David went to. Is there a, you guys go ahead and yeah, there we go. See, I, both of us were good. So here is, this is, uh, this is Jerusalem right here. And with Jerusalem being right here, this is where David and Galid right there is, um, is where they, um, um, most of David's um, um, action was. The Philistine battle, or the Goliath battle, was taking place um, right there. And then he went into the caves right here. At Odalah, it would be right here, the Philistines. And then you also have um, Saul's army right here. So he's kind of right in the middle. He then did escape, and he went over to Moab. Remember who um, Moab is? What, what the country of Moab, what came out of Moab? I said it really fast. Remember who's out of Moab? Ruth. Ruth is out of Moab, and so that would be what his grandmother went to um, Moab, and then after he left, according to this verse, he went to Moab, and then he stayed there for a while. Then he went to 1 Samuel 22. It says, so he left the king of Moab, and they stayed with him on long as David was on the stronghold. And where is the stronghold? The stronghold is right there. And I want to show you some pictures of the stronghold. Uh, the stronghold, if you ever go to Israel, I'll tell you um, that you will go up to the stronghold. Um, the stronghold is called Masada as of right now. And the reason why, it is a rock that you really cannot, it, people cannot be defeated. You cannot defeat an army that camps on this rock. If you go on the top of this rock, there's cliffs on all different sides, and the only passageway up is right at the front, and I've hiked the trail from the bottom up there, and I will tell you that it is not easy, and any army that wants to come is not going to be able to do this. And I will tell you that King Herod knew that this rock was a stronghold, and he built an entire, entire castle um, um, up there specifically for him. And I will tell you that it, and I don't want to give you all the history of Masada because, well, I guess I'm not doing the class, so maybe we give you the history of Masada right now. Um, so um, King Herod ended up building the, um, a city up here, and he brought water down to the city of the stronghold, so he received water, he received strength. Anybody who wants to attack Herod was going to do what? Was going to die. Why? 
because he was on the stronghold and nobody is going to break that stronghold whatsoever. So here's King's Herod. Here's King's Herod Palace. His castle goes down here and then the, the city takes place on a stronghold and you see the sheer cliffs where nobody is going to attack. So it is the rock that carries an extreme amount of strength. Now here is a modern picture of Masada and what do you see here? What is that? That's called a, a siege ramp. Um, and during Jesus' time, um, you know, Jesus, it was not during the, Jesus' time, it was during the disciples', um, the disciples time, A.D. 70, what happens? The Romans, they killed Jerusalem, and they took over Jerusalem. And what took place is um, all the Jews ended up escaping um, for their lives because if they did not escape, what happens? They would be killed, they'd be destroyed. And in the process of being destroyed, the last stronghold was right up here. And what did the Romans do? They came up and they built a siege ramp right up here. And as they're building this siege ramp, what was taking place with everybody here is like someday they're going to make it to the top. And right before they make it to the top, what did they all do? Every single one of them ended up committing suicide. Um, because as soon as the Romans made the siege ramp to the stronghold of the rock, you get up to the top, then, then it's, it's going to be all over. They committed, they ended up committing suicide. And um, after they committed suicide, I'll tell you what took place 2,000 years after that was done, is that um, the Israel army, right now, and I'm talking about right now, says that it will never happen again what took place at Masada 2,000 years ago. It will never happen again. In other words, we will die fighting. We will not lay down our arms. And after they pass their Israel boot camp, what do they do? They all run up to Masada, get to the top of Masada, and say, I have passed. I'm giving my life for this country. Nobody will end up taking it with me still being alive. I will not commit suicide. They're doing that specifically even today. So it is the rock of the stronghold. First Samuel said David went to where? He went to the stronghold to say, what, Saul is after me. Philistines are not my, they're not my, they're not my, um, they're not my allies Nobody is with me. I will end up going to the stronghold, and I will make my life there. First Samuel 22 says, But the prophet of Gal, I'll let you guys read it now. But the prophet of Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Here's a prophet saying, Don't stay on top of Masada to f- defeat your enemies. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. So here's David all on his own with 400 people, 400 losers, going to the stronghold, saying, okay, I've got God, but I'm going to use this rock to make sure that I'm not defeated. And then the prophet says what? The prophet of Gad says what? I want you to go down into the center of Judah. So when you think about Psalms and all the words that David starts to write, I just want to read some of the Psalms that are coming out of his emotions and coming out of his heart. Psalms 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my, what? Rock. I'm leaving my rock (laughs) that I have. But the Lord is my rock. He is my fortress. He is my deliverer. So when Gad says, I want you to leave the stronghold, he's leaving what? With a heart that's connected with God, not his own strength. You're my fortress, my deliverer. My God in whom I, and my God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and my horn of my salvation and my stronghold. 
I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I have saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangle me, the torrents of destruction overwhelm me, the cords of the grave coiled around me, the snares of death confronted me, but I have a rock that is higher than I, or even that. Psalms 31, again, in you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me from righteousness. Turn your ear from me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock, my refuge, a fortress, a strong fortress to save me, since you are my rock and my fortress. For the sake of your name, lead me and guide me for me. Free me from the trap that is set for me, for you are my refuge. And then the last one. No, there's two more. Psalm 61, my Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the endless of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Psalm 62, he alone is my rock, my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation, my honor depend completely on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. What does a man after God's own heart look like. That's exactly what a man after God's own heart looks like. I'm not dependent in my talent. I'm not dependent in my gifts. I'm not dependent in my capabilities. I'm not dependent in a fortress. There is one rock that carries my strength that is completely beyond all. So what does he do? He leaves the rock and he goes into Judah. But does he really leave the rock? Yeah, he reads the rock that probably should save him. But he goes into Judah with the rock of God. Travels then to En Gedi, and I just want to show you a couple pictures of En Gedi, because if you do travel to Israel, En Gedi is the place where there is a spring, where there's water. It's where the animals show up, and it's also where the people show up. This is in his hiding of where he's at. Saul does travel to En Gedi and try to kill him, and we do get the story of him cutting the cloak when Saul was going to use the bathroom there. What's taking place is David's still in control. Is David's still in control is because God's in control of him. And then he also travels, oh, here's another picture of En Gedi. You can see that the springs are, are, are pretty amazing. I just want to rush through David's life. He tra- travels to Gibeah, Saul, spares Saul's life again. Ramah, Carmel, wilderness of Ziph, um, and then back to Gath, and then also to Ziklag. As he is traveling around these areas, Saul is still continuing to pursue him. He has armies on all different sides. He only has 400 people. We see that it goes up to 600 people. It goes up to 3,000 people. He's starting to build his army with what? People that were only leaning on God. And those people are then being trained. So I do want to go back to Saul because we're going to end 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 31 says this, and I want to look at a couple couple pictures. 1 Samuel 31 says this, The Philistines pressed hard after Saul, and his sons. Now the Philistines fought hard against Israel. Is that, is that right? 31, 1 through 4. Yeah. And the Israelites fled before him, and the army fell slain in Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his arm barrier, Draw your sword and run me through. Or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his arm bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own life by his sword. And then 1 Samuel 31, 9 says, They cut off his head and they stripped off his armor. And they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the good news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple 
and they fastened his body to the walls of Bethshan. So if you look at the story of, I just want to compare the stories, the story of Saul, that I will fight my own battles, I will do it in my own strength, I will do it with my own mind, and I will do it with my own heart. And then you look at the story of David, I have absolutely nothing, and I'll walk into the thicket of the Jordan with absolutely nothing, no rock, no refuge, no people that can even defend me, but I will carry the rock of God. My heart will always be connected with him. As you start watching that take place, you see somebody that does carry that success. But the story of Saul is a sad story in a sense that what takes place at the end of his life, he goes into battle, and he goes into battle, what does he do? He doesn't win. He dies. Saul dies, even commits suicide. Why does he commit suicide? Because he's worried about Philistines taking the complete advantage of him, making a humiliating statement with him, and Saul's end return or end goal, end thing that took place was he was humiliated. According to this verse, they took him to Beth Shan. Now, Beth Shan is a place that is in Israel, and I do want to show you some slides and we'll go ahead and click to some of these, these slides. Um, this is, grab this one right here. Um, I just want to tell you, this right here is the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley is what? The battle of Armageddon that is going to take place. Gilboa, Mount Gilboa is right there. This is where Saul and the Philistines and Jonathan ended up passing away or ended up dying. And Bethshan is right there. We'll go to the next place. Bethshan is a place that was just uncovered. Um, within the last 20 years. And it, it was, as it was uncovered, it was, um, Saul was, it says, it says on here that Saul was placed, was stripped and was placed and was hung, according to this passage, fastened to the wall of Bethshan. What is the wall of Bethshan? The wall of Bethshan is right here. What are they doing? They're making a spectacle of him, probably putting him right up to the top here. And this was the city that was down here. As they were looking at him from the top, you can see the wall here. You see the city. What are they doing? They're making a mockery completely entirely of them. These are my pictures that I ended up taking. This is our guide as he's sitting there explaining all this to us. This is at the top of Beth Shan or the wall of Beth Shan. So you can see that once you go to the top, this is possibly where you know, Saul was even displayed before the city, making the complete mockery of. And then you see the city that takes place down there. And here's another picture of them at the bottom. And then here's a picture of Bethshan, again with the wall there. And then you will see that it is a place of luxury, a place of, good place to end up mocking people, mockery. And here's another piece that is there. And then this right here, this is with, a, with an entire um, arena and the, the joy. I'll tell you that this is Jack Braun, um, that's sitting right here. And do you know what he's sitting on? He's sitting on a toilet. This is a community toilet. You put buns on each side, and then you have a spot that would just drop down there, and there's a little drainage that goes, goes through, so we just like to see Jack. But we all said, okay, this is what it looks like you know, in the Coliseums. Whenever the Coliseums is taking a break, then everybody shows up, and this is our entire team that, that, was, that was ended up being there. And then I just want to look at this last verse. When the people of Jabesh Gilead heard of the Philistines had done to Saul, and all their violent men journeyed through the night to Bethshan, they took down their bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh, where they were buried. They took the bones and buried them under the termicus, the termicus tree in Jabesh, and they fasted, they, fasted for seven, they fasted for seven days. So just in closing, you have somebody whose heart was going one direction and it was not a direction towards God, and he had somebody's heart that was going in a direction 
and it was going specifically towards the direction of God. And you do see what takes place, mostly when it comes to leaders, you see what takes place in the end. And you can also see what God is looking for and what God wants to do through people and what happens to people who refuse to not let God do something through them. So this is a challenge to all of us as we always take in mind Saul, who's king, and David's a king, and then ask the question, am I a man after God's own heart, or am I a man with my talent, my gifts, my strength, my vision, my will, my desires? You see what takes place is everything is under the submission of leadership, which would be under God, and that's where all of our strength is at.